Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. This podcast was previously recorded as a client webinar and edited for podcast use. Welcome, everyone, to the Benefits Executive Roundtable. I'm your host, Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. I am very happy to have with me today one of our favorite regular guests, Marilyn Monahan of Monahan Law Offices. Marilyn and I are going to be jointly discussing the Consolidated Appropriations Act, or CAA, of 2021's Interim Final Rules for the No Surprises Act, which is a balanced billing or surprise billing act that goes into effect on January 1st, 2022. Dorothy, I'm happy to be here today for Season 3. And since we're going to be talking about the No Surprises Act, I'm going to provide a little intro. Then I think I'm going to turn it over to you to discuss because I know you just wrote a detailed article on this topic. That sounds great to me. Thank you. Well, actually, before we get started on the No Surprises Act of the CAA, Marilyn, why don't you go ahead and give us a a brief summary to start us off with the ACA transparency rules and a little bit about the CAA, and then I can take over and talk more about the No Surprises Act. What we're going to talk about to start this program off are the ACA transparency regulations as well as what the CAA has in store for us. So I need to kind of put some things in context so that when we get into the deadlines and what you have to do sooner rather than later and what's been delayed, you understand the big picture. So the first item is back in on November 12th, 2020, Um, The Trump administration issued an extensive set of regulations under the auspices of the Affordable Care Act, and they're referred to as the Transparency in Coverage Final Rule. Dorothy, I know, has done a lot of work on these. They are going to require a lot of work by health plans as well as issuers, and we're going to break those down and talk about precisely what the Transparency in Coverage Final Rule covers. So that was November 12, 2020. Then on December 27, 2020, President Trump signed the Consolidated Appropriations Act 2021, or the CAA. The CAA was a huge bill covering a lot of ground, covering a lot of provisions, um, including many provisions that apply to health and welfare benefit plans. Earlier this year, we were grappling with the changes to the cafeteria plan rule that the bill um, contained. But it also contained a lot of additional provisions, such as the surprise billing provisions and so forth. Some of the provisions in the CAA uh, duplicate provisions in the transparency and coverage final rule. Some of them do not. And um, when the government realized this, um, the Departments of Labor, Treasury, and Health and Human Services, they issued in August, on August 20th, 2021, a set of FAQs, acknowledging the fact that some provisions uh, duplicate between the CAA and the Transparency and Coverage Regulations, some don't. Many of them are going to take a lot of time to implement. And what they basically did was they gave us additional time to implement some provisions. Other provisions, they're still going to require um, uh, to uh, implement on time under the original statutory deadline. And they've also provided in that guidance some um additional information, some additional insight on whether we can expect further guidance, further regulations, further FAQs, or not. So with that background in mind of 
how those two pieces of the puzzle work together, let's get into the nitty-gritty of what they do. There are basically five parts to the transparency and coverage regulations. The first three are the public disclosure parts. And number one, it requires health plans and issuers beginning on or after January 1, 2022, that's the original effective date, um, have to create first a machine-readable file with in-network rates and post them on the Internet. Then they also must post on the Internet a machine-readable file with out-of-network rates. And three, they must post a machine-readable file with negotiated rates on prescription drugs. Um, oh, by the way, these transparency and coverage rules do not apply to grandfathered plans. As I'll talk about later, however, the CAA rules do apply to grandfathered plans. So in the set of FAQs they issued in August, what they said is, we understand that creating these machine-readable files is a lot of work, so we're going to give plans additional time to create the machine-readable files on in-network and out-of-network rates. Basically, you'll now have until July 1, 2022 to create, um, to get those, uh, those, uh, that information up and running on the internet. Um, however, as of July 1, 2022, you are going to, um, have to comply if your planned year started on any time on or after January 1, 2022. So, um, everyone, for the first half of the planned year, has got to be ready to go by July 1, 2022, and then after that, it will be based on your planned year date. With regard to the information regarding prescription drugs, what they said about that is they realized that there was a provision in the CAA that substantially duplicates this transparency and coverage provision. So what they've done is they've delayed that indefinitely while they work out guidance on the um, CAA's provision on disclosure of prescription drug prices. So in addition to the machine-readable files, there's another provision um, in, the, uh, in the transparency and coverage regulations, and that is an online self-service tool. And they've broken this down into two parts. Basically, the first part is plans and issuers have to have an online self-service tool that lists 500 shoppable items and services, um, and it must be available for plan years beginning on or after January 1, 2023. A shoppable service is something that you can uh, price out in advance. And all of this is, as the name implies, all about transparency. The idea here is that a participant who might need something like an MRI or a CAT scan or a particular lab test can go online, figure out what it's going to cost them depending on which provider they choose, and make an assessment of what their best option is. So they provided us with a list of 500 shoppable items and services which all plans and issuers who are subject to the law have to make available as of January 1, 2023 and thereafter. And then you have another year to make all of your other covered items and services not included in the list of 500 uh, available as of January 1, 2024. These deadlines were not extended by the FAQs. So as things stand now, those deadlines are firm. Now, I mentioned that they recognize that the uh, information about prescription drugs uh, was substantially duplicated by a provision in the CAA. Well, the same is true of this online self-service tool, except in the CAA, they call it a price comparison tool. But again, they find that it's largely duplicative 
of the of the uh, CAA provision. The two uh, provisions are largely duplicative. The one difference, well, the two differences are that the CAA provision applies to grandfather plans and the CAA provision also has a telephone requirement so that um, participants can call up over the phone and get prices. That was not part of the uh, transparency and coverage regulation. So what they're going to do is they're going to study the two provisions, figure out um, how plans should move forward and whether or not if plans comply with the transparency and coverage regulations and develop the online self-service tool under those regulations, will they be then therefore also in substantial compliance with the CAA price comparison tool so long as they add a telephone option. That's what they're looking at now and that's what they'll let us know at some point between now and January of 2023. So what are your action items? If you are a fully insured plan and you are subject to these transparency and coverage regulations, you must enter into a written agreement with your issuer, with your insurance company, through which the insurance company agrees to be responsible for compliance with these transparency in coverage regulations. And if they agree to be responsible, then if they fail to do so, they will be liable for any potential penalties. If you have a self-funded plan, you must either comply or outsource um, compliance to a third-party service provider and enter into a written agreement with that third-party service provider so that they will provide you with compliance with the transparency and coverage regulations. Now, there's a little twist here. If they fail to do so, if they um, don't comply or they, they don't uh, fully satisfy the terms and conditions of the regulations, the self-funded plan remains liable. So that means one of the things you should be looking at when you enter into these agreements with your third-party service provider are what are the indemnification clause, limitations of liability, and so forth and so on to protect you in case they fail to perform. One other item I wanted to mention in this context, because I think it could cause confusion if I don't, but I'm mentioning it and with the good news that this does not create any work for anyone on this phone. <laughs> there was another set of regulations issued under the Affordable Care Act a couple of years ago that requires hospitals to publicly post information about their costs and services, the costs for their services. In this case, they had to start by uh, posting um, 300 shoppable services. And that requirement actually went into effect January 1, 2021. I'm telling you about this because it's been in the news quite a bit lately, and I would have let you understand how it all fits together. Again, it's a hospital mandate, not a plan mandate, not an insurance company mandate. But apparently some enterprising uh, newspaper reporters have been digging around and found out that uh, a lot of hospitals haven't been complying with this. And so CMS issued a set, a set of proposed regulations where uh, the comments close period closes tomorrow. And in um, within those proposed regulations, one of the things they're proposing is substantially increasing the penalties for hospitals that don't comply. So if you hear chatter about that, that's what they're referring to. Okay. So with the transparency and coverage summary that I've just provided, I now want to put the compliance deadlines in context. And Dorothy has provided you with a more detailed handout that I created on all of the compliance deadlines for the TIC final rule, as well as for um, the CAA. Um, but I have summarized them briefly here on these charts. So this is just a rundown of the five different items that I talked about under the transparency and coverage regulations 
the three machine-readable files, and the price comparison tool, which will be um, implemented in two different stages. And I've got the, um, the deadlines here on this slide. And so these are the deadlines for the CAA, the various provisions that we um, I want to go over with you that are in the CAA that apply to group health plans, including grandfathered and non-grandfathered plans, including fully insured and self-funded. So the chart mentions the specific item. The next column, of course, as you can see, is the original compliance date. And then the third column is the new compliance date. And as I mentioned, the chart that Dorothy is circulating has even um, a little bit more information um, for you on how all these works. So I talked about the price comparison tool, which um, substantially replicates provisions in the transparency and coverage regulations. That has been delayed for plan years beginning on or after January 1, 2023. The reporting on pharmacy benefits and drug costs. This is a mandate within the CAA that would require plans to report on, for example, their 50 most expensive drugs, their 50 most prescribed drugs, to gather that type of information. The original compliance dates have been postponed on that because of the fact that they um, do overlap to a certain degree. So they're delayed indefinitely pending guidance, but they've also said that plans should start preparing to report for 2020 and 2021 by the end of December of 2022. Now, let's get into some new areas I haven't mentioned before, the ID cards. There is a requirement in CAA that we uh, update our ID cards, our health plan ID cards, to contain more information. Under this requirement, you're going to have to include out-of-pocket limits and deductibles. So everyone will be getting new ID cards going forward in the new year. If you're a fully insured plan, you can expect to see a new uh, amended versions of your existing ID cards. If you're self-funded, this is something that you're going to have to implement. They have not delayed the ID card requirement. They do expect to issue guidance on the ID card requirement, but not by January 1, 2022. They won't get it out before the first deadline hits. So what they've advised us in that set of FAQs I've referenced is that until then, plans should implement the requirement using a good faith, reasonable interpretation of the statute. There's also a new provider directory mandate. Plans are going to have to update their provider directories every 90 days. And um, if, for example, you don't update your provider directory, let's say a participant calls you up and says, please provide me with the name of an in-network doctor, and you in error give them the name of an out-of-network doctor, that individual will not be responsible for the price differential. So that provision, again, that would go into effect beginning on or after January 1, 2022, has not been delayed. Again, like with the ID cards, they will issue guidance, but don't expect to have it out by January 1, 2022. So until then, you have to implement that provision using a good faith, reasonable interpretation of the statute. There is a provision in the CAA that would allow individuals to go to their doctor and say, you are going to perform the following services. Can you provide me with a written estimate of how much it's going to cost me and provide me with the billing codes that would apply? This is planned to go into effect as of January 1, 2022. What the FAQs that I keep referring to talk about is they are not going to delay this provider mandate for uninsured individuals, 
but they will defer enforcement for insured individuals. Um, they will eventually issue guidance. They think they can get it out prior to January 1, 2022. Once you get that good faith estimate from a provider under the CAA, you can then take it to your plan and you can say, these are the services my provider is going to provide and these are the billing codes and then ask the plan to provide the um, participant with an advanced explanation of benefits so that the um, participant can get an understanding of what they will have to pay in out-of-pocket costs if they go to this particular provider. They do intend to issue guidance on this part, the advanced uh, explanation of benefits. They don't expect to have this out before January 1, 2022. So they have delayed compliance with this provision indefinitely pending guidance. Surprise billing. This applies for plan years beginning on or after January 1, 2022. It has not been delayed. Dorothy is going to talk about the surprise billing regulations next. Mental health parity. There is a mental health parity provision in the CAA that requires plans, both fully insured and self-funded, to make certain that they are providing mental health and substance use disorder benefits in parity with their medical and surgical benefits. And in order to establish that they're doing this in parity, they have to prepare some rather detailed comparative analyses so that if they get audited by the Department of Labor, the Department of Labor will ask to see these and then they can produce them saying, yes, we do provide these benefits in parity, both under the terms of our plan and in actual practice. That provision is already in effect, and I've heard from some practitioners that the Department of Labor is already asking for those comparative analyses when they conduct audits. Gag clauses. There is a provision in uh, the CAA that says that plans and issuers cannot enter into contracts with provider networks, which restrict their ability to disclose certain information about in-network rates. That provision is currently in effect. It is considered self-executing, so they may not be issuing guidance, but there's a separate provision with respect to the gag clauses where you actually have to report to the Department of Labor on what you've done here. And that provision, the reporting to the Department of Labor, has been delayed indefinitely pending guidance. I skipped over continuity of care. This is a provision that requires plans to provide coverage at in-network rates for a certain period of time, for about, for a certain period of time, I think it's about 90 days, for individuals who are experiencing um, certain health conditions if the individual's provider goes out of network. Implementation of continuity of care has not been delayed. Finally, I wanted to mention the broker disclosure provision. There is a provision in the uh, CAA that requires brokers and other consultants to disclose additional information than they might have been currently disclosing on fees, commissions, and the scope of services they're providing to plans. This goes into effect December 27, 2021. It has not been delayed. We have guidance on the section of this provision that applies to individual coverage. We don't have any guidance on the section that provides uh, applies to group health plans, although we're hoping to get it pretty soon. If you're self-funded, obviously you're going to have a few compliance challenges to add to your to-do list between now and the beginning of the year and then the next couple of years. So work with your outside service providers to ensure that you get these done. 
Um, in some cases, it's going to require amendments to your contracts and so forth. But you need to create an action plan, a checklist, and follow through with any outside service providers you need to retain to provide these services. If you're fully insured, most of these items will be taken care of by your insurance company. But it is still wise to uh, reach out to your insurance company and make sure that they are intend to uh, be compliant. For example, on the mental health charity, um, while it is a mandate, uh, it's a mandate on the plan. So if you as the employer get audited, they will ask for these comparative analyses. Now, obviously, you can't run them, only really effectively the insurance company can. But if you have it in writing from the insurance companies, yes, we will be in compliance, you can at least present that to the Department of Labor if they come calling. I did mention earlier that while the transparency and coverage regulations do not apply to grandfathered plans, the CAA does apply to grandfathered plans. This They clarified that in the uh, FAQs that they issued. So I created this little list here of areas where I thought that might make a potential difference. Dorothy's going to talk about the surprise billing interim final regulations. One of the ways in which that will make a difference is under the ACA, there are certain patient protection rules built in, but they do not apply to grandfathered plans. What they've done with the CAA is they've restated them under the surprise billing rules. So now they do apply to grandfather plans where they didn't in the past. Also, there were some rules in the Affordable Care Act as to how to pay and process and price out claims for emergency services. Those will be effectively replaced by the CAA rules, which Dorothy will talk about, and those will now apply to grandfather plans. With regard to the transparency and coverage rules, the prescription drug reporting requirement and the self-service tool, which do not, did not apply under the transparency and coverage regulations to grandfather plans, their counterpart in the CAA will now apply to grandfather plans. So Dorothy's going to dig into the nitty-gritty of the surprise billing rules. Now, these were um, a very extensive set of regulations. I think the most, the first really extensive set of regulations we've seen under the CAA and they're going to make a big difference to fully insured and self-funded plans as well as to participants. So this is just a little overview of what they're all about. First of all, they ban surprise billing for emergency services. So emergency services, even if you go to an out-of-network provider, they will be treated as if they were in-network without prior authorization. They also banned high out-of-network cost sharing for emergency and non-emergency services. They also banned out-of-network charges for ancillary care at an in-network facility in all circumstances. So let's say you go in for um, surgery at an in-network facility and you say, oh good, I only have to worry about my deductible and copay only to find out your anesthesiologist or your radiologist or the lab tests were out of network and now you're looking at a big balance bill. This is designed to take care of that. Um, similarly, there's... Um, there is an out clause for some out-of-network providers where they can provide you with a notice and still go ahead and balance bill you. So the way the system is set up is there are certain ancillary services with, for which that um, approval can never be obtained. So there's various notice requirements. This may require an amendment to plan terms. Um, it will probably, uh, if it doesn't, uh, in addition to an amendment to plan terms, it will definitely require probably an amendment to claims procedures that your TPA utilizes. And one final reminder on this point is state rules on uh, balance billing limitations continue to apply. We have a few of them here in California. 
so um, that mostly apply to uh, fully insured plans, those don't go away. They're just going to have to be integrated with the federal standards, and the highest standard is what the participant will be able to take advantage of. Um, so I want to talk about the CIA's No Surprises Act. Marilyn's already uh, talked about it a little bit. I'm going to give you some more details. So basically all health plans, whether it's group or individual, whether you're on a marketplace plan like Covered California, on a Medicare plan, no matter what type of plan you're on, they uh, many of them offer a network of providers and facilities, which you know, we refer to as PPO networks or EPO networks that, of course, agree to accept payment of their established, pre-established contracted rate. We're all familiar with that. Um, that doesn't always apply in some self-funded plans, particularly those that are dealing with um, reference-based pricing. And I will address that because there are some s- specific uh, situations here that we need to get into details on for reference-based pricing plans. Uh, Non-network providers generally charge, as we all know, higher amounts because there's no contracted pre-established rate. So in many cases, those out-of-network providers, as Marilyn stated in the summary, they may balance bill the patient for the difference between what they normally would bill, their original bill charge, and the amount that the insurance company has paid unless it's prohibited by state law. As Marilyn said, that the CAA allows state laws to remain in effect. Keep in mind here in California, our balance billing laws only apply to fully insured plans. They do not apply to self-funded plans. Uh, but balance bills can happen in both emergency and not, non-emergency care. We've all seen this. We've all experienced it. People get those notices at home and they think everything's been taken care of because they have an insurance. As I, st- as I mentioned at the beginning of my article that um, that I wrote last month, but then they get this surprise bill or balance bill in the mail, and uh, people are kind of shocked by that. I've seen some ridiculously high amounts of uh, surprise billing charges. So in an emergency situation, we all know that the patient goes to the nurse emergency room. That's what we want them to do because you know, if it's an emergency, you need to get in. You need to be seen by someone as soon as possible. Uh, but what happens is many times you go to the ER, um, and even if the ER is, is a contracted PPO facility, as Marilyn mentioned in the, the uh, summary as well, not all of the providers working inside of the ER uh, will be contracted by the network. We've all seen that too. Back in, in the old days, we used to call that, if you guys remember correctly, when I used to uh, help you with self-funded plan uh, design, I would call those force providers, and we still call those force providers in a lot of cases. Um, Marilyn mentioned a couple of them, but... Here's the deal. The majority of, believe it or not, there are over 70% of the, the uh, hospitals in this nation um, subcontract out their uh, emergency room staffing. It's not always with their, with their own employees of the hospital. Uh, and the people, the, the providers, the doctors that are most often subcontracted are ER physicians, anesthesiologists, pathology, all types of pathology, lab, x-ray, and so forth, rehab care, physical therapy, neonatology or neonatal care, uh, surgeon assistants. Surgeons. We see this a lot, particularly in self-funded plans on assistant surgeons and surgeons, uh, where you think you've gone to the right hospital, you think that you've gone to the right places, and you know you ask, "Is this a PPO facility?" Before I book it, and so forth, and then you get this whopping bill at the end. So that's what this No Surprises Act is designed to uh, to limit and to, to prohibit, actually. So one of the things that I want that I talked about in, in my article, and I want to mention again, is unfortunately 
people don't do this, but one of the questions we should probably promote more in open enrollment meetings and employee trainings is perhaps patients should simply ask who pays you because that's how you know whether they're an employer, whether they're an employee of the hospital or whether they're outside so they can kind of have a heads up a little bit. Oh, they're not employed by the hospital. Um, so there's a chance here for a balanced billing. Hopefully all this will go away because of the No Surprises Act. But again, that's something that in the past we probably would have uh, benefited from if someone had just simply asked, you know, where, where do you get your paycheck? Is it from the hospital or is it someone else? Because then way you could, you know, that way you could negotiate and advance a little bit or anticipate um, that there might be some additional charges. So, and we also see it again for a lot of air ambulance bills. We all have seen ridiculously high air ambulance bills and they're, they're usually not part of the network at all. So uh, those are areas where we've seen those balanced bills. One thing that I want to mention, and this is something that a lot of people don't realize or have forgotten about because people don't talk about it a lot, and that is that in most cases, your surprise medical bills usually do not count toward your deductibles or out-of-pocket maximums. So if you think you have, well, it's, it doesn't matter to me because I have a you know a $3,000 maximum out-of-pocket this year. Sorry, that doesn't apply when you get balance billed, okay? What's what applies to the deductibles and the out-of-pocket maximum, the amount that are actually covered under the plan and the charges that are allowed um, within your plan. Okay. So again, the interim final rules um, on this, they, they try to address all of these types of situations. Okay. And these rules apply to, again, all group health plans and all health insurers uh, offering group or individual plan, including grandfather plans effective this coming January, January 1st, 2022. It does not apply to retiree-only plans, accepted benefits, short-term duration plans, FSAs, or HSAs. But uh, again, keep that in mind. So what is the intent of the No Surprises Act? The intent is to protect consumers from these types of billing practices uh, that we're describing here, and we've all experienced those. What it does is focus on um, non-network situations by limiting the amount of the bill that they uh the amount of the bill that they can bill for, okay, under a network arrangement. So what happens when you don't have a network? Well, I'll talk about that in, in just a few moments. But that's what they're limiting it to. And by the way, there are ways to protect self-funded plans with reference-based pricing. Uh, we just need to discuss it so you know what your options are there. This was a bipartisan bill, and I want to mention that because today in Washington, a lot of times that doesn't happen, <laughs> uh, the politics and all. Um, but one thing that has happened here is that the one thing that, that politicians in Washington can seem to agree on is the fact that they have to stop these balanced billing uh, operations because it's just ridiculous. Um, so you're going to hear talk among the industry, around the industry, that it doesn't, uh, this bill doesn't affect, it won't help you if you're self-funded and use RBP. That's not actually accurate. It can you can be protected. You just have to have the right vendors in place and you have to make sure that you're addressing these things up front, which again, I'll get into. So again, let's get into more of the details of the interim final rule. And again, this is part one. They're going to be releasing a part two and, and so forth later on. It's supposed to be this month. Um, and then some other things will be released in, in October. So as Marilyn discussed briefly in the, in the summary, um, what this bill does is it bans the surprise billing for emergency services, regardless of where they're provided. They have to be treated on as, uh, as though they were in network and without any prior authorization requirements. And it also bans the high cost out of network cost sharing for emergency and non-emergency services. Okay. So, um, patient cost sharing like coinsurance or deductibles cannot be any higher, uh, than they would have been if they had been performed in network. Okay. So any coinsurance and any deductible must be based on in network rates. 
Now, there are limits uh, for cost sharing that are going to be equal to something called a recognized amount, which basically we refer to in the past historically as the usual uh, customary reasonable rate. And I'll talk more about that. And my article gets into this quite a bit in detail, by the way. So you might want to refer to that after this podcast for additional information. Uh, but the amount must be calculated based on one of the amounts that they specified in the rule, which said can be determined by an applicable all-payer model agreement, which is identified by the Social Security Act, or an amount determined under a state law, or if neither of those apply, the lesser amount of either the bill charge or the qualifying payment amount, which I'm going to talk about. We have a new <laughs> a new acronym, a couple of them, a QPA, a qualified payment, qualifying payment amount. Uh, so that's going to be quite complex, especially for third-party administrators and claims payers. Uh, and uh, I expect a lot of people having to send their claims adjusters to class <laughs> to learn all this new terminology and so forth. So it's going to be an interesting learning curve for the first six months to a year of this, I, I, I believe. It bans out-of-network charges for ancillary care, again, like the anesthesiologist and the assistant surgeon for in-network facilities and all circumstances, and it bans out-of-network charges without advance notice. So the providers and the facilities have to provide patients with a plain language customer notice, as Marilyn mentioned briefly, that explains to them that they have to consent in writing um, to receive an out-of-network uh uh, higher or higher rate. Um, so in other words, we're going to overbill, we're going to overcharge you. Is that okay? And you have to say okay to that. So <laughs> I'm guessing that's not going to be popular. So we'll see how that all plays out. Um, and it, and it has to be in advance. So they can't yes. hand it to you when you're on the gurney going into the, uh, emergency, going into the surgery. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to talk about that a little bit later, but that's great. Yes. So just keep in mind, it's something that you have to think about. They're, they have to actually be prepared to have you sign off on in advance, which again, I think is going to be quite interesting. So some of the employer and plan sponsor concerns, which obviously applies to everyone listening to this podcast today. Um, it, it's basically this, this act should be good news to you and to your plan participants that, you know, because you've worried about this, you've seen this, you've experienced this before. Uh, employers and their brokers should educate employees um, on these new rules during your open enrollment or other means, you know, memos, videos, and so forth. We need to really educate your employees on this. And we will be doing that here at Advanced Benefit Consulting for sure. Uh, we'll be creating videos on it as well, uh, as we've done other videos in the past. So we will be doing that. And ancillary services from those quote unquote force providers, it should be good news as well to you because they were, you know, again, the targets for the balance billing in the past. So this bill directly applies to all of those problematic situations. Okay. Um, so you should review your plan documents and make sure they're consistent with the interim final rules. And I'll tell you right now, most of them are not going to be, they're going to have to be amended. Um, because this language wasn't, you know, wasn't something, this law wasn't in effect before. So we will definitely have to have plan amendments. Uh, we need to discuss with your third-party administrators um, and your your carriers, you won't have a choice if you're fully insured, it's just going to happen, uh, about important changes to your administrative services agreements and also potential cost increases uh, because this implementation is going to be important, but it's also going to be expensive to administer. And I will talk more about that. Some of the administrative concerns that we have because of this um, is that it's going to change the practices of the claims payment industry. So third-party administrators, uh, the way they have to do business is going to change. It's going to limit them on what they can do. Um, they're going to be requiring that coverage be provided without limiting what constitutes an emergency medical condition typically by the standardized definition. 
uh, solely on the basis of diagnosis codes or the ICD-10 codes. Uh, and as I mentioned in my article, it really looks like the departments uh, in Washington have expressed their disapproval of claims practices in general because they don't look at all the facts and circumstances. The reality is claim payment generally bases everything on the original diagnosis code, okay? They don't care that other facts and circumstances, they'll automatically potentially sometimes um, deny coverage. Uh, that's because a lot of it's due to the volume of claims activity too. I used to do this myself when I was in the TPA business, so I'm not blaming anybody on this. This has just been standard industry practice. We're going to deny it based on the diagnosis codes, and then you can appeal it and you can provide additional information. And then it's reopened and examined and actually they take a look at the other notes and so forth. Um, so it seems like the departments are really frowning on this practice and they're trying to make this as difficult for those situations to happen as possible. And they're going to force them up front to start reviewing all the facts and circumstances rather than waiting until um, the claim is denied initially and then having to come back and re-adjudicate that claim based on additional information. Now... Um Go ahead. This is an example of, you know, someone has severe chest pains. They go into the um, uh, ER only to discover it's heartburn. And then the uh, plan might deny the claim as an emergency uh, claim and charge them uh, the higher out-of-network costs. And they're trying to crack down a little bit on that and um, provide a different standard. But that's what you're going to talk about now. No, that's fine. I actually like you to speak up because I want you guys to hear this is not just me talking. This is uh, coming from an attorney as well as myself. So, you know, I'm not I'm not uh, just making things up here. I want uh, it always makes me feel better when Marilyn does speak up so that it tells you guys that I actually kind of do know what I'm talking about sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but a medical condition manifesting itself by acute symptoms, as Marilyn said in the example, such as, you know, severe pain or something like that. What is the prudent layperson, you know, who, who possesses an average knowledge of uh, health and medicine? What can they reasonably expect from that situation? Does it place their health in serious jeopardy, seriously impair their bodily functions, or cause serious dysfunction to a bodily organ or a part? Okay. So these things that we've thought of before in our definitions are going to be changing because of this law. Plans ultimately are going to have to determine whether the standard was met by reviewing the presenting symptoms without imposing any time limit between the onset and the presentation for emergency care. Because in the past, that's something that's been, that's, that's happened in claims adjudication as well. If there wasn't a certain time frame met between onset, you know, and, and, and when it actually happens, when they actually walk into the emergency room, because let's face it, people don't always go into the emergency room the second they have a symptom. They wait, they wait, they wait. And there are times when in the past the claims process would deny that claim because they didn't go to the emergency room in the first three hours or six hours. Okay. Sometimes they waited a day or two or something like that. And it just continually got worse and they waited until it got worse and worse before they went in. So this information is directly um, related to what they're talking about in the surprise billing, the, the uh, no surprises act. And these things are going to have to be amended within your plan documents. So we're going to have to make that language, make those language changes and TPAs are going to have to uh, revise their claims procedures and their training to their employees, right? Update their record keeping systems and so forth. Now, there are actually some code regulations here that Marilyn had had uh, had provided me with. I didn't actually have those. But the standard is now going to be placed on the prudent layperson standard rather than those old traditional 
claims adjudication standards. So I just want you to be aware of that. So what they're going to do with the surprise billing is place many of the new obligations on the health plans and the insurers uh, or plan issuers. Okay. So employers with fully insured plan, um, they need to communicate with their carriers and make sure that the carrier is going to comply with this stuff on time, see if there's any additional education information that they can send out uh, to the employees and so forth. But even if you're even if you're fully insured and your carriers haven't done that in time, we're going to be preparing, as I said, videos and uh, written communication pieces that we will get out to everybody, to our clients in advance, so that even if your carriers are a little slow getting this to you, uh, that we can start educating your employees because this is going into effect on January 1st. So employers with self-funded plans, of course, as Marilyn said before, they're going to have a lot more work to do. Sorry about that. But changes are going to occur to things like plan documents, ID cards, which Marilyn's already uh, mentioned, provider directories, and, and more. Uh, it's also going to require changes to your TPA contracts, most likely, and again, to those internal claims processing manuals and how claims adjudicators are actually um, taught to pay these claims. Because they're going to have, which I think is going to be more difficult for them to unlearn what you've known in the past and, you know, relearn something new. People don't like change. So this is going to be a little, I think this is going to probably the mo be the most difficult part of this is the claims adjudication side of it. Employers need to be prepared to discuss this with their TPA. Uh, who's going to be doing all this stuff? Who's going to be, who's going to be responsible for all of these things regarding implementation? But the most important thing is you need to figure out who's responsible for everything. As Marilyn mentioned before, we really need to have a checklist and, and a, an assignment of who, who is performing what tasks to make sure everything's done on time? Uh, is this going to increase costs? I can guarantee you right now. I'm just speaking. Sorry, I you know me. I I'm a straight shooter. I'm going to tell you the way it is. This will can this will increase costs because again more training uh, systems um, changes uh, within claims adjudication systems and so forth. They're not going to be able to use those straight ICD-10 codes anymore. Um, so this is going to increase costs. So people are asking, you know, how do we do this? How do we contain costs now? Well, you might have to think about things like, you know, higher emergency room co-pays or co-insurance potentially. Um, there's been some talk about raising deductibles or additional deductibles for ER services. Again, if you're a grandfather plan, you won't be able to do this. Okay. You have to keep your plan and you want to keep your plan the same because if you lose grandfather status, you're going to have to deal with all kinds of things, particularly like those transparency rules and things like that. So this is not the time to lose uh, grandfather status. If you're grandfathered, please do stay there. Uh, stay there in, in grandfather status. Educate your employees on more cost-effective steps before they walk into the emergency room and educate them more on using urgent care centers rather than emergency rooms because obviously those are a lot higher cost settings. And look at things like telehealth. If you can use telehealth, use telehealth because that's going to keep the costs down as well. Uh, for services that aren't life-threatening, um, you know, those are the best types of options that you have. They can call in and get a video call or a phone call with a provider. That'll save expenses. So I anticipate, and and I'm not alone in this, the whole industry seems to think that administrative expenses are likely to increase, especially in the short run, because they need to do some programming and things like that and retraining. Uh, and there's a lot more steps that administrators have to go through to, to implement this law. So just be aware of that. Can I've, I add something there, Dorothy? Absolutely. This is practical. It's not legal. But um, while you're having those open enrollment meetings, when you're encouraging people to use telehealth and urgent care centers, in the COVID world, um, keep in mind that ERs are very busy. About two months ago, I had to take a friend to the ER. We sat there for on a Friday night. We sat there for four hours and never did get service, left, and my friend went to the, the urgent care center the next day. So um, that's another incentive uh, that employees should keep in mind um, that uh, might encourage them to use some of these alternative 
forms of treatment that might actually be better for them in the long run. Absolutely. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. Thank you, Marilyn. I appreciate that. So I want to talk about this. One of the new acronyms you're going to need to be aware about, the Qualifying Payment Amount or QPA. You'll hear that acronym a lot now. QPA, Qualifying Payment Amount. The QPA is the median of the in-network or contracted rate in a geographical area. Um, this is going to be a little bit more complicated for RBP plans, and I will come back to that in a moment. Uh, but it also applies in other portions of the law, including the baseline factor that an arbiter may use uh, when they consider uh, the amount that's going to be the final payment amount, okay, because they're going to have a new federally established independent dispute resolution process. It's, it's like a baseball-style arbitration process. So... Um, those of you that are sports fans will be a little bit more familiar with that. You'll be able to relate to that a little bit. Um, so arbitration is going to be involved. Again, these are some of the other reasons why I anticipate that, and I believe Marilyn probably anticipates it as well. She probably agrees with me, that costs probably will go up uh, because of this law. Uh, but the bottom line is hopefully it'll save you money, even though it might cost some administrative expenses up front, especially in the early periods. I think as this goes on and people get more used to it, it should stabilize because you know it's the learning curve that always you know, takes the time, energy, and money to take care of it, you know, programming and that sort of thing. Um, but what happens under the No Surprises Act is that if a self-funded plan uh, and an out-of-network provider can't agree on a rate, then they have to go directly to uh, an independent dispute resolution process, or IDR, which I'll talk about again in a moment. But the median contract rate uh, should be determined by taking into account, you know, all of the group plans uh, that are offered by that uh, self-insured plan sponsor. Uh, and then it allows for administrative simplicity for self-funded plans to permit the TPA, which is basically all of this is going to fall on the TPA. Let's, let's, let's just be real here. Uh, that that they're going to have to process their claims and they're going to have to really figure out what the QPA is going to be. They may not have all the information available to them because they may not know the median contract rates because historically PPOs have not before transparency was, went into effect, right? They, people didn't disclose those rates. Reference-based pricing is a little bit different because you know what those rates are. It's whatever percentage above Medicare. Uh, but again, that median contract rate is not something that most administrators will be able to figure out on their own. So they're going to be relying on – you're going to be relying on your TPAs. Your TPAs are going to be relying on their PPO networks or the RBP vendors uh, and or the RBP vendors with the PPO network to determine what that median contract rate is. Okay, uh, So this is going to be complicated, particularly in the, be in the beginning, as I said before, long learning curve. And it states that the contracted rate between the providers and the, uh, and the network uh, for the health plan are going to be treated as the self-insured's contracted rate, the self-insured plan's health contracted rate for the purposes of calculating the QPA. So this is not something I expect you guys to understand right up front um, or, you know, the complexities and the details. I don't even expect the TPAs to get this quite yet until they dive into it and figure out what's going on. Um, then, you know, <laughs> I think we're just going to all have to work with it and understand you're going to have to be a little patient as this goes on because this isn't something that you can snap your fingers and everybody's doing it properly the first time. Uh, TPAs are going to find this very complicated, very expensive, as I mentioned. Uh, and most self-funded health plan sponsors are going to rely on, of course, those administrators to assist them. Um, so just be aware and be patient. And we'll try to walk you through all of this stuff. As, as It's like everything else that's new. The Affordable Care Act. Remember when Marilyn and I went around the state and did all of those many, many, many seminars and so forth. Hopefully, we won't need to do a lot of these, but we'll do a lot of webinars. We'll put a lot of stuff up on our website on the uh, on our education center. Uh, we'll be communicating with clients regularly and so forth. Um, so again, 
the administrators are going to have to deal with this. They're going to have to determine the QPA. They're going to have to figure out um, the implications of the emergency room services definition, you know, those new definitions that they have and taking the extra step to um, understand those claims and looking at the claims adjudication process uh, in a little bit more detail than they did before. And they're going to have an independent, again, they're the ones that are going to have to be directly involved with the independent dispute resolution. Um, so again, keep in mind, fees may go up. I hate to be the one to tell you that, but that's the reality of the situation. So again, when they're determining the QPA, they have to look at geographic regions used to determine the contracted rates. Um, they are providing some statistical information, okay, uh, and they're going to allow you to use Medicare, the U.S. Census, all kinds of things. They are including in the interim final rules the something called the rule of three expansion, meaning that if the plan can't determine, um, can't identify the three rates to determine the median rate, then they're permitted to increase the size of the pool, basically. So they can in increase it in size up to the state, the size of the state or a single region. If, so obviously, California is divided up into a lot of different regions, Central California, Northern California, Southern California. So likely in California, they would just use Southern California, for example. Uh, but they'll be allowed to to expand the pool if they need to figure out what that what that uh, median rate's going to be. Uh, they're going to need to use databases, obviously, to figure this stuff out, uh, and they're going to have to work with their networks and their RBP vendors to figure that out. So again, uh, business associates are going to be absolutely 100% involved in, in, in making this all happen. The interim final rule, they did issue us clear guidelines, you know, and steps to take to determine this. Uh, but it's complicated. And again, it's going to, it's not going to be something that the industry is going to be able to snap their fingers and do right away. So, you know, the self-insurance industry had concerns, by the way, about conflicts of interest while using databases. But one thing they did cover, they actually, um, did listen to the Self-Insurance Institute of America, who in the initial comment period said, we're worried about the conflict of interest, um, because of the potential that they own the networks and so forth. Um, the the network you know the the PPO network owns its networks and so forth or had that contract those contracts in place and so what they did was they stated that if the organization maintaining the database um, they cannot be affiliated with controlled by or owned by any health insurance issuer provider or healthcare facility to um, basically eliminate the potential for conflict of interest where people will be you know trying to you know increase their own the rates because it affects their own bottom line that sort of thing so they did take that into consideration the independent dispute resolution again another new acronym for us all the IDR um, Basically, it's going to, it works like this. If a payer, such as a carrier or a health plan, can't resolve the payment settlement, as I mentioned, with the provider, then the payer and the provider must resolve the uh, payment dispute using the methods of negotiation and arbitration. Again, that baseball type arbitration. It requires the payers to send an initial payment or a denial or a denial of payment um, within 30 days after the claim is submitted. And then after that 30-day period, either party can begin negotiations on the claim. And if they can't come to an agreement during that period, then they move on to the independent dispute resolution process. Okay, So that process can be initiated within four days of the initial 30-day period. So that's basically a 34-day window. So it's going to go pretty fast. You don't have to worry about the fact that this could go on for six months. They're forcing them to get into this process within four days of that. So it should go relatively relatively fast, but again, it's, it's not going to be easy in the beginning. They, it, it's, I, I just anticipate some, some slowdowns <laughs> in the initial stages. Marilyn, did you want to make a comment? It sounds like you were. Yeah. I was just going to mention that initial payment has to satisfy certain standards. They can't just send you a check for 
the $10 and be done with it. So they have to, it has to be a reasonable amount. There's some language in the regulations themselves, the, the standards that you have to meet when you send out that initial. Yes, good point, good point. I did mention that in a lot more detail, by the way, in my article, so you might want to refer to that as well. But um, So each entity is going to offer a final payment amount. The arbitrator is going to then use those factors. and you know They're going to look at both sides, and they're going to determine what that rate should be, including you know what happens in that geographical region, the service codes, and so forth. The intent is to make it fair to everyone. Again, the baseball-style arbitration. Um, and they're not allowed to use the lower payment rates, such as Medicare or Medicaid. That's not to say that, because keep in mind, self-funded plans using reference-based prices, and you're not using Medicare, you're using that as your baseline, but you're paying at a rate above Medicare, uh, not at the Medicare rate. So they're not going to allow it to be, well, we'll just pay it at Medicare. That's going to be our amount that we submit as our payment uh, amount that we want to pay. So they're not going to allow that to happen. So it, it does not, the good news is, is that this independent dispute resolution process is not going to affect the consumer or the plan participant. So you can breathe easier. That's not, it shouldn't have a direct impact on your employees. So breathe, <laughs> breathe, because I know this is difficult to um, understand. The dispute is between the provider and the health plan. Those of you that are self-funded with reference-based pricing, you're already going to get this because believe it or not, this is one area where actually you already have a process set up for this kind of. So um, it could actually be in your to your benefit, believe it or not, uh, because that process is already set up. Uh, but there's going to be some, again, some learning curves across the across the industry. So keep that in mind. So let's talk more about that. Those of you that are self-funded with reference-based pricing, um, you don't have a network. So what do you do? Or you maybe have a network for doctors, but not for hospitals. So what if this is a facility claim and you don't have a network? So what do you do? Um, there's a lot of talk about this. And, and basically what the consensus seems to be in the industry is that First of all, if there's no network, the claims are going to be paid at a reference-based rate, okay? Um, that's what we do in, in self-funding. Uh, we use the Medicare rate, okay? So it's 150% of Medicare, 200% of Medicare, 175% of Medicare, whatever you're using, 140%, um, 130%, whatever it is. Um, I do anticipate that a lot of plans may decide to up their percent, especially if they're in the lower ends, 130 140%, 150% of Medicare, just to avoid the um to avoid the potential for the independent dispute resolution or delaying things i anticipate and a lot of people in the industry including the self insurance institute of america and so forth a lot of people are assuming that the um percentage of medicare rate is probably going to go up a little bit because of this so instead of having your maximum be at 200% that you know this you can pay up to this amount um even though we're supposed to pay at 130 or 140%, we're going to allow you through negotiation to go to 200. They may be raising that to maybe 250%. Um, I anticipate the 130 to 140% of Medicare is potentially going away, at least on the facility side, and maybe putting that, edging that closer to 175 to 200% potentially. That's what the industry seems to think might happen, but keep in mind that's still more cost effective than other types of plans. So, so even though you might have to raise that a little bit, it, probably will work out okay. Um, at times, of course, sometimes providers refuse payment from RBP plans altogether. They have automatically said, no, if it's reference-based pricing, we're not going to pay it. We're just going to not accept that plan. Um, so then people go straight to balance bill and that sort of thing. So 
the RBP vendors, they've been struggling to figure out solutions to limit the disruption. And they have actually come up with some solutions. And a lot of ours, for example, our clients are already doing this with their reference-based pricing plans. For example, um, they might have already started raising those percentage above Medicare. Uh, keep in mind that when you're dealing with reference-based pricing, you're paying at 140, 150, even 200% of Medicare, where PPO contracts are generally 300% to 900% of Medicare. And we've seen them go as high as a thousand or more percent of Medicare. So you're starting with a lot lower number, which is really good. Uh, but you may have to raise that a tad. Um, the industry has come, basically what they're saying is that what they can do and what we can do, some of the, I called it workarounds. Marilyn didn't like that term, right, Marilyn? <laughs> um I called it workarounds in my article and even in a CE outline that I filed, which they did accept. <laughs> but um, she she liked the term strategies and options better. And I can understand that because workarounds sounds like you're trying to get around the system and try to not do things uh, according to <laughs> what the rules tell you. That wasn't my intent. Uh, but what they're doing is they're going to be doing a lot more like what they call one-off facility contracts. In other words, they'll create a single case agreement, oftentimes negotiated upfront if they know that the service is going to happen. So before you go into the hospital, they'll contact the hospital and or your employee goes in. They're going to contact them in advance and say, um, we have a person that needs this procedure. Um, our plan plays, pays X and start the negotiation and get a predetermined rate or what they call a one-off agreement. Um, in advance of that actually happening. Uh, some vendors are already doing that. Um, we have at least one client that's already in an arrangement like that. Uh, the other RBP vendors, they do that, but that hasn't been common. So they're going to have to start doing more of that, I think. Um, so for example, if it's a known procedure, knee replacement, hip replacement, or something like that, they can go in and they can give them the RBP rate and start the negotiation and work that out and say, okay, we won't accept 175% or we won't accept 150%, but we will accept 200% or 225% of Medicare. Get that done up front. Um, so direct provider contracts, that's also a possibility. I think that RBP vendors are going to be forced to do more direct provider contracting than they have in the past. Uh, again, some of uh, the RBP vendors out there already are doing that. Um, so when they're, when they're related to a network, um, it's, it's going to be, they're going to have an advantage. Um, so that's a good thing. And even if they have created their own network, whether it's a, for example, I'm just going to give you a couple examples. HST is an RBP vendor. They are now owned by Multiplan, which is a nationwide network. The fact that they're involved with a network and owned by a network now, it's going to help them in all of these processes. But if you're example, for example, with someone like AMPS, who doesn't have, you don't have an, um, a network owning you or anything like that, but they do have something that they've already pre-contracted, which is called their AMPS America product. I'm just using two you know, two RBP vendors as examples, then because they already have that Amps America thing working um, across the country, that should help in those situations as well. So you're going to start seeing more of those um, single case agreements. You're going to see more direct provider contracting, which I think is a good thing. I think it's going to help the self-funded market quite a bit. So those are some of the strategies and the options, but keep in mind your percentage of Medicare, if you are using reference-based pricing, likely will have to go up uh, because of this. That's my guess. Well, thank you, Marilyn, so much for participating in this podcast. I really appreciate it. And thank you for letting me take the lead on the No Surprises Act. I was happy to let you take the lead, Dorothy, on that very important topic. And thank you again for inviting me to participate in this program here today. If uh, anyone should ever want to reach out to you, Marilyn, to discuss the No Surprises Act or anything else, how can they reach you? Well, they can reach me by phone, 310-989-0993 or by email, marilynatmonahanlawoffice.com. 
Well, thanks again, Marilyn. This has been fun. And for the listeners, please stay tuned next week for part two of our No Surprises Act podcast, as I will be interviewing senior executives of HS Technologies, a reference-based pricing vendor, on the RBP applications and their insights for the No Surprises Act. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks again, Dorothy. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835 or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.